0: Good afternoon everybody. It's good to be here with you. My name's David. Uh, I'm a regular worshipper here at REC, um, but I'm at the front today, which is quite nice. Uh, So let's uh, turn back, shall we, to to Psalm 132. If you've shut it, can you open it again, please, so that we're all on the same page together. And we're going to be looking at this psalm together. Let's just pray, shall we, before we start. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've not left us Ignorant or groping around in the dark, you've given us your word to teach us, to instruct us, to guide us and lead us, and we pray that you will do those things for us this afternoon as we study your word together. Help us to be patient, to be listening, and to be obedient and responsive. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Right, so we've come to Psalm 132, which is one of the group... Of Psalms that we've been looking at, the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, this one is, uh, I've called it hardship to joy. And uh, that's what I hope we'll be, we'll be looking at. That's the, the direction we'll be going uh, in this Psalm. And we've seen that the Psalms of Ascent hold together as a group. They were probably sung by the uh, Israelites as they went up to worship at the temple for all the great festivals of the Jewish calendar. But even as a group of Psalms, um, as they hold together, they're not just uh, floating around, as it were, in, in the, the, the book of Psalms. They're there for a reason. They're in their place for a reason. In fact, the whole book of Psalms um, is not just like a hymn book randomly thrown together with songs. It is uh, set out in a particular <coughs> way. And I thought it would be helpful to look at that to start with. Actually, I was at the, to the Keswick Convention a, a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, there happened to be a, a seminar stream on the Psalms. So I thought, I'd better go to that and find out about what I'm supposed to be talking about. Um, So I went, and it was actually very helpful, I I found it. And this was uh, the structure that the speaker um, gave us, which I think is very helpful for us. If you look in your Bibles, the Psalms are set uh, set out in books. Um, Each section is entitled book, book one, book two, and so on. So in the original, they were separated out. And this is... a generally uh, how how they they hang together. So book one is about suffering David. Most of the psalms in book one are either written by or about King David. And it's about living in a broken world, suffering in a broken world. And then book two goes on to the hope of Solomon, which is looking forward to God's redemption and salvation. It's a forward-looking block of psalms. And then in book three... They are what's called the exile psalms, psalms about the exile when the Israelites were, were sent away from the promised land. And it's about remembering God's acts and looking forward to his redemption, looking forward to the time when they would again be, be rescued. And then book four is about covenant love, about celebrating God's redemption, about his love, his mercy. And finally, in book five, there's a looking forward to the glorious future of the kingdom, rejoicing in the reign of God. And that's really how the Psalms hang together. But within that, we've got the Psalms of Ascent. And they come in Book 5 in the final section. And even the Psalms of Ascent are grouped. They're they're in groups of three. One, two, three, as you go through those Psalms. And the first one in the group is about being far from home. The second one is on the journey. And the third one is in Jerusalem. So you can see how it works when they're the pilgrims are are traveling towards Jerusalem, maybe they sang them in that order as they were going, when they were starting out from home, when they were on the journey, and finally when they'd they'd reached their destination in Jerusalem. So Psalm 132 is in book five about looking forward to God's kingdom, to the glorious future, but it's also the first of a block of three, so it's about being far from home. So the psalmist faces hardships. My version in verse 1 says, uh, remember David and all his hardships. Uh, Comes slightly differently in other versions. So there's hardship about being far from home. There's yearning for a future. Verse 7 talks about, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship. He's looking forward, a yearning to be in God's presence. A yearning to be worshipping him. And it's also about failure. Failure. Or a sense that God is far away. Verse 10 talks about not rejecting the king, not rejecting David. A feeling that God maybe is far away, perhaps that you've offended God, that he may reject you. But it is also looking forward to a time of righteousness and joy. And I thought, isn't that where Christians are today? Isn't that where we are as Christians? Yes, we're sure of what the future holds. We look forward to a glorious future. We hold fast to the promises of God. We look forward to the reign of God's anointed king. But at the same time, we're very well aware that we are far from home. We, are, we, are, we sense in the world around us, and in our own lives, that all is not as it should be. We see the chaos in the world around us. We sense the struggle, even within the church, to maintain a true gospel. And in our own lives, we're only too conscious of the battle uh, over sin and failure. Yet, like the psalmist, we can rest on the promises of God in verse 11, that God's anointed one will sit on the throne forever and ever. And that is our hope, and that's what we can rejoice in and be sure of. So let's get into this psalm a little more deeply. And it falls quite clearly into two parts. The first half, verses 1 to 10, are describing David's desire to uh, build a temple, to build a place where God will dwell in Jerusalem. It's his wish to build a temple for God. And then verses 11 to 18 contain the Lord's answer and his promise, what God is going to do about that and what ultimately his final um, answer to David's prayer will be. And these two sections run in parallel together so that there, there are phrases and words that are repeated so that, they, that, 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 so that when you move on to, to section two, you're, you're reminded about what came in section one. So there's some examples. Verses one and 11 talk about the Lord and David. So that's a relationship between God and David, what God asks, what David asks from God and what God's response is going to be. Verses two and 11 talk about swearing an oath. That's talking about certainty, about David's desire, his certain desire to build a temple and God's certainty about answering that prayer. Verses 8 and 14 talk about a resting place, ultimately where God will settle and where the saints of God will find their rest. And verses 9 and 16 are verses almost repeated word for word talks about priests and saints, righteousness and salvation and joy. And then in 10 and 17, there is the anointed one, the coming king is mentioned. By the way, one commentator described this as a notoriously complex psalm. So cheers, Ben, for giving it to me. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So uh, let's look at the first part then, verses 1 to 10. David's desire to build a temple. And of course, this is not simply a grand building program. It's not part of it, I guess, was David establishing his power base in Jerusalem, but it's not simply about that. It is a genuine desire to see God placed in the center of life in Israel. David wanted his reign in his new capital, Jerusalem, to be characterized by the presence of God, and the key to that was the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to come on to that in, in a moment. Um, So this first part then is looking back to when the Ark of the Covenant was brought up to Jerusalem, to David's new capital. And it's wholly appropriate that the people should uh, celebrate that event when they came to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, It was a very significant event for them. It established Jerusalem not only as the political capital but as the religious center, the center of the worship of God for them. And let's look at David's attitude here. Uh, when he went about this business of bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. He was serious about it. It says in verse 2 that he swore an oath. That means he meant business. Oaths could not be revoked. Your life depended on fulfilling your oath. In the New Testament in Hebrews uh, chapter 6, verse 16, we read that people swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath confirms what is said. And puts an end to all argument. So if you've sworn an oath to do something, certainly as far as the Bible's concerned, that puts an end to it. That's going to happen. You're going to do it. You cannot go back on your oath. So this was st- serious stuff for, for David. He really meant to carry it out. He was determined. He meant business. Then verses 3 and 4 said that he would not sleep until he'd completed the task. In other words, he, he, he was tireless in getting on with the business of what he would promised to do. Now, of course, there's poetic license here. I don't think we can imagine that David went without sleep until the temple was built, because the temple actually wasn't built in his lifetime. So uh, that, that, that can't be right. But it's poetic license, and it means that David was absolutely determined to do the job. He wasn't going to let anything get in the way. Now, we know, as we've said, that God had other plans. It was going to be Solomon that built the temple ultimately, and there were reasons for that in David's life. But David's commitment to the task here cannot be faulted. And I wonder how committed we are as God's people to see God enthroned both in our lives and in the world around us. When we promise to serve God, maybe when we first come to faith, Uh, We made a promise, uh, Lord, I'll serve you. I'll make you king of my life. I'll follow you all my days. Do we make that sort of promise, as it were, with an oath? Not literally, but is it so important to us that we will let nothing get in the way of fulfilling that promise? I know only too well that I fail many times to carry out that sort of promise. I let other things take priority in my life, I get sidetracked with more attractive occupations. I'm distracted by the world around me and I back off for fear of the, re- the repercussions of putting Christ first in my life. David knew those things as well. We talked about the hardships mentioned in verse 1 and he did have a hard life. In the early days before he became king, he was chased around the, around the, uh, the country by Saul who was trying to kill him. And later on, if it wasn't Saul, it was the Philistines who were after him trying to kill him. He was beset by sin. We'll see an example of that in a moment. It affected the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem. And he fell into grievous sin when he took the woman Bathsheba to be his wife and murdered her husband in order to get her. And yet, he was known as a man after the heart of God. How amazing is that? How incredible is the grace and mercy of God? He can take our faltering and feeble and sin-soaked desires and make them into the working out of his plans. Praise him, he can turn a a fickle Peter, for instance, into the pillar of the church. He can use even you and me. He knows our hearts. He knows what our desires are. And if our desires are in line with what he wants, he can bring them to fulfilment, despite our failure, our sin, and our inability to do what he wants. Praise God for his mercy, because if that were not the case, then we would all be sidelined. God doesn't need to use us, but he desires to use us, despite our failure and weakness. So how did David go about establishing Jerusalem in the, then, then as a place where God would be worshipped and could be found? Well, the first stage, as we've said, was the bringing up of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, you may recall that the ark was an ornate wooden box and in it were the tablets of, of the law that Moses had received and also Aaron's rod. And it was carried around with the people when they were wandering around wherever they went. The priests carried it around with them and it was placed in the centre of the camp when they were encamping encamp, encamped. But once they settled in the land, once uh, they entered the promised land and settled there, The ark had several resting places. But once David had captured Jerusalem and made it his capital, he wanted the ark to be brought there as a symbol of God's presence. Now, he had two attempts to do this. The first time he tried it, he was slapdash and irreverent. He let anyone carry the ark when uh, the the scripture clearly says that it should be the priests that carry the ark. In fact, he lumped it onto a, a, a cattle truck, an ox cart, and let that take, take it. Uh, a totally inappropriate and irreverent thing to do. And because of that, the whole project ended in disaster. A man called Uzar put his hand out to, to steady the ark because the oxen had stumbled. Now if the priests had been carrying it, well maybe they wouldn't have stumbled, but the oxen did. Uzar put his hand out and God was displeased with that uh, show of irreverence. And Uzar paid with it for it with his life. But it was actually David where the, uh, who bore the blame for this. Uh, he should have known better but he didn't. He was too eager, too keen to, his, to, to push his own will forward and he didn't wait for God's timing. So the ark was left in a farmhouse in a place called Kiriath-Jarim and basically forgotten about for a period of time. What's all this got to do, you might ask, with Psalm 132? Well, it's all there in verse 6, if you have a glance at verse 6. Verses 1 to 5 describe David's deep desire to find a resting place for God. But then in verse 6, it all becomes a bit vague, doesn't it? We heard about it, it says. We came upon it. What are we talking about? What have we heard about? Well, the it here is the Ark of the Covenant. It had been lost. And it seems that here it is being rediscovered. It's a bit Indiana Jonesy, really, isn't it? A search for the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, It's a bit more real than that. But the clue in verse 6 is the place names. It says we heard it in Epaphra or Epaphora. Well, that is another name for Bethlehem, which, of course, was David's home city, the city of David. So maybe the people were asking, well, where is the Ark? Well, perhaps it's in Bethlehem. After all, David was the last person to have anything to do with it Maybe that's where we'll find it. But is it there? No, it's not in Bethlehem, not in Ephrathah. Well, where could it be then? Well, it's actually found in a place called JR, which is another name for Kiriath Jarim, which is where the ark was. And it says, We came upon it in the fields of JR. Well, there it is. It's in a farmhouse in Kiriath Jarim, at the home of a, of a man called Obed Edom. And that's where it was found. So this next stage of making God the centre of life was to do with, first of all, finding the ark and then transporting it to Jerusalem. And if we are on a search for God in our lives, we must determine to do it first. We must go about finding the means of achieving how we can make God first in our lives, like finding the ark The ark had to be found as far as the Israelites were concerned. Nothing was more important than that. And Jesus said, didn't he, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask and it shall be given to you. And he told us where to seek as well to find God. After his resurrection, uh, Jesus met two disciples on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And he explained all about himself from the scriptures. It's the scriptures that point us first of all to God and then to Jesus Christ himself. Many times in the New Testament, there are instances of people searching the scriptures or being told to search the scriptures and find God there and being explained from the scriptures all about Jesus. If you want to find God, look in the scriptures. The ark, after all, contained the tablets of the law, which was the word of God. Now, I know that that was a symbol of the presence of God. I don't suppose anybody actually opened the ark and read the tablets of the law. Uh, I rather imagine they didn't. But the symbolism is clear. The law or the word of God is to be central to finding God, to God's presence with the people. But the symbolism of the ark goes further than that. For on top of the ark, there was something called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. It was between uh, two carvings of of cherubim angels, and it was there. Uh, We don't know what it looked like. Maybe it was just the lid of the ark, but it was called the mercy seat. And here's the significance of it. The law in the box inside is covered by the mercy seat over the top. Paul gives us uh, an explanation in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. The mercy seat represented an offering to God which would cover the law and make the worshippers acceptable to God. We cannot live up to the demands of God's law. Most of the time we fail even to live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. We are quick to condemn others for falling short, but do not admit that we ourselves are far from perfect. But we can praise God that the law is covered by the mercy seat. The cross of Christ rescues us from the demands of the law because Jesus fulfilled every demand of the law. And he paid the price for our sin in his death. We can be forgiven and made right with God by trusting in Jesus Christ. He's done it all for us. So having rediscovered the ark, the people then set about making God the centre of their lives. So in verses 7 to 9, uh, we move on to describing what, how the people responded to, 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 the, to the ark being brought to Jerusalem to this uh, sense that God was now there among us in a much more permanent way than perhaps they felt he was before. And there's three things they did uh, in verses uh, seven to nine. There's humble worship. Verse seven says, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Humble worship of almighty God. Then it says the priests are clothed with righteousness. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. And then thirdly, may your saints sing for joy. So there's humble worship, righteousness, and joy. These are the response, or the responses of uh, the people to the presence of God. The only right response to God is humble worship. God is our great and mighty creator. We are his creatures. We need to bow down and worship him. And the priests were there, as the go-betweens between the people and God, for they could approach God with a sacrifice offered by the people, which were signs of sins forgiven, so that the worshiper could come to God without fear of judgment. For believers in Jesus Christ, the access to God is open wide, because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. When Jesus died, the curtain in the temple, which separated the people from the Holy God, was torn in two from top to bottom. The way to God was opened up. And I would say, if if there's anyone here who does not yet know Jesus Christ as their savior, if you haven't come to God in repentance and faith, I want to ask you, what's stopping you? What is stopping you? Because your sin has already been dealt with on the cross. Jesus died 2,000 years ago to pay the price for your sin, to open the way for you to come to God, to make it easy for you to come to God because the the curtain has been torn in two. The law has been fulfilled in the life of Jesus. You don't have to fulfill it. If you feel guilty, feel unable to live up to to your standards or God's standards, God's saying, I know, I know you can't do it. Jesus has done it for you. You don't have to be righteous, righteous, you don't have to be religious, you don't have to come to church for a set time. You only have to come to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness. Ask to be let into his kingdom. Ask him to come and be a lord of your life. You can do it today. You can do it now. Simple prayer in your heart will do it. Ask him in. The New Testament says that we are all priests because we all have access to God. And notice that in verse nine. It says the priests are clothed with righteousness. It wasn't the righteousness of their own. They didn't have it by right, by who they were, by their office. They didn't suddenly put on a priestly garment and it made them righteous and holy. It's God's righteousness that clothed them. It was a righteousness given them by God, by the mercy of God. And it's the same for us today. We can only be righteous before God when God clothes us in his righteousness When Jesus died on the cross, there was a great exchange made. He bore our sin, but his righteousness then becomes available to us and we can be clothed in his righteousness. And then the people sang for joy. That was the result, singing for joy, the joy of sins forgiven, the joy of a hope of glory, of just being accepted and welcomed by a loving father, the sense of being home when you felt far away before. So then the ark comes to Jerusalem, and the people sing for joy. In fact, if you read the account of it in uh, uh, the second book of Samuel, you'll find that David was so excited that he started dancing in his underwear. We won't go into that just now. (laughs) Um, But that's what he did. But having got there, having established the presence of God in their midst, what is God's response to all this? verses 11 to 18, begin to tell us about God's response. His first response is to tell us that we need never fear that the basis of our salvation, the kingship of God's anointed one, is ever in doubt. Here is one of the instances in the Psalms when the human king of Israel, in this instance David, seems to morph into God's chosen and anointed king, like uh, Luke was telling the children, or telling us all, um, The people were looking to the human king to be the answer to God's promises. But actually God had other ideas. It was to be his anointed one who was to be the the, the answer, the, the fulfilment of the promise of a king. When we look at the Psalms and we read about David, as we do a lot in the Psalms, we must always bear in mind that ultimately the true central character in the Psalms is the Lord Jesus Christ is looking forward to God's anointed king. So in verse 11, when God swears by an oath that there will be a king forever on the throne of David, it cannot mean a physical king in Israel. David's dynasty died out centuries before Christ. So here is a solemn promise by God that his anointed king will rule for all eternity. And nothing can dethrone Christ from being king because God has sworn by an oath that his king, his anointed one, will rule for all eternity. So there's no philosophy, no human ruler, no satanic power. Nothing can break the rule of Christ. And that should give us great comfort and great boldness too. We are part of a kingdom that cannot be defeated. That is God's promise. It cannot be defeated. And the fact that God made this promise by swearing an oath only reiterates its permanence. I mean, God's word alone would have been enough. If God had said to David, I'll put a king on your throne forever, that would have been enough. But maybe God uh, knows our weakness, knows our uh, uh, inability to take him at his word sometimes, perhaps a concession to us. He went one stage further. He made it more convincing, if he could be. He swore an oath that this would be the case, that his king would be on the throne forever. Nothing can be stronger than an oath sworn by Almighty God. And he lays a condition down for this promise. He says to David, If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then this will come to pass. Now, as uh, again, as Luke said earlier on, the Israelites, both the kings and the people, failed to keep God's covenant and to follow his statutes. And they failed most abominably and miserably. But really, that's the whole point of this. God's covenant to David is fulfilled in the new covenant in Jesus Christ and his blood. For us or anyone to keep God's commandment and to keep his covenant, we have to trust in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. We cannot keep our part of the covenant in our own strength. The Israelites proved that over and over again. And they, if anybody, should have been able to. They knew the law. They had God with them. They had the priests to teach them. But again and again, they failed. And we are just the same. The amazing thing is that it's all of God's mercy. The keeping of God's covenant is his mercy. God's kingdom is firmly established, not because we keep on trusting in Christ, but because he continually shows us grace and mercy. And the point of the new covenant is that just like David, we cannot keep God's law, but Jesus has done it for us and has given us the grace and the faith to believe and trust in him. What a glorious gospel it is, isn't it? How amazing it is that God knows that we will fail, yet loves us, yet showers more grace and more mercy onto our lives. Jesus died the most horrific death so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a place in heaven, so that the law could be fulfilled in him. And nothing can shake the result of that. Nothing can shake Jesus, his his kingship, his reign and his rule. Not even our weakness and unfaithfulness. God's covenant is established in Christ and in him alone. And it's Christ who keeps the covenant firm. Now the psalmist at this point moves on to a much higher plane. His eyes are lifted from the earthly city of Jerusalem with the ark there and a new temple to be built to a future city where no ark would be needed, no temple established because God himself would dwell with his people. He says the Lord has chosen Zion for his resting place and there he will be enthroned. Of course, uh, we, we can see that that uh, promise is fulfilled um, most fully in the, what we read in, in Revelation about the New Jerusalem. Let me just read um, what John the Apostle described as uh, what he saw of the New Jerusalem where God was going to dwell and reign. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now is the dwelling of God with men, and he will live with them. They will be with him, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And I did not see a temple in the city, Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now I don't know if you noticed in that any connections with the the last part of this Psalm 132. I've tried to draw up a few here connections between John's vision of the eternal holy city and what the psalmist saw there. So in verse 14 we see that God is enthroned forever there. This is my resting place forever. Here will I sit enthroned, for I have desired it. And we saw in in Revelation, God being in the city, enthroned among his people. He will have abundant provisions, verse 15. There'll be no shortages there. Everything will be provided for his people. Her priests are now clothed not just with righteousness, but with salvation. And her saints do not just sing for joy, but sing for joy forever, in verse 16. And we read of the the saints singing for joy, worship to God, and righteousness reigning there. David, now God's eternal king, the Lord Jesus, will will be strong. Uh, In verse 17, we read about a horn. A horn will grow for David. That's a symbol of strength, of authority, of power. And he will shine out like a bright lamp, giving clarity and light to his people he will set up a lamp for my anointed one. And we read about didn't we, in, in the New Jerusalem. Uh, there being be no need for sun or moon or lamps because the Lord God is the light of the city. And he will have a resplendent crown, one that outshines all other tokens of power. All other rulers will be casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, as the hymn puts it. So this then is a vision, a preliminary vision of the 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 city of God, the place where God's anointed will reign forever. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the ultimate aim. That is where um, the throne of Jesus Christ is, is, is going. When everybody, all creation will acknowledge him as God's eternal king and ruler. It's an amazing foretaste of the glory to come. And we can only join the pilgrims in Jerusalem in singing for joy forever. I think that's why Christians sing such a lot, or it ought to be why Christians sing such a lot. There is so much to sing about, so much joy, glory that we have. And it's this vision that keeps us going when times are tough on the journey. David had a rough time, and we do too sometimes. There may be some here going through tough times, times of sickness, of pain, of sorrow, of hardship, one sort or another. But we have a vision before us. We have something to aim for. We have a certainty in the future. It's not vague. It's not, well, I hope sometime to make it. Or if things turn out all right, it should be okay. Or I hope everything will fall out okay. It's not like that. It's a promise of God, an oath of God. It's certain, it's sure. There is a kingdom, there is glory. And if we're trusting in Jesus, that's where we're heading. That's God's promise to us. So I need to ask us all this morning, is Jesus our king? Is he your king? Have you made him king of your life? Are you walking in the light of his glory, of his kingship? And do you have that hope of a place in his eternal kingdom? Jesus promised to all who believe and trust in him that where he is, they will be also. And he is there, he is enthroned in glory and he's promised that if we're trusting in him, we will be there too. So let's just close then with a prayer of thanks, shall we? Uh, to God for his grace and mercy uh, and a prayer for um, courage and strength in the journey as we, as we keep going on that journey towards that kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your promises. We thought about them this morning. The promise of an eternal king that we have seen fulfilled in the Lord Jesus We know that he died, but we know that he was raised from death and he ascended into heaven and is now glorified at the right hand of the Father. Thank you that he promised to go and prepare a place for us. And we uh, celebrate and rejoice in that promise. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us courage, boldness, persistence, perseverance in the journey as we carry on towards that kingdom. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Be with us day by day, even when times are tough. Grant us the strength and the faithfulness to keep going in you, Lord. And thank you that your mercy is always available when we fall, when we fail, and when we slip. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, to keep focused on where we're going, and to keep trusting you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.